If you have a Bible, we're going to be uh, teaching here for the next little bit uh, from Philippians chapter 3. So I invite you to open up an app, or if you have a physical Bible, you're old school like me, um, go ahead and open that up. Philippians chapter 3 in the New Testament, flip almost all the way over to the right, and then just back a few books. I'm going to be reading uh, verses 12 to 17. So I hear these words from the Apostle Paul. By the way, if I, if I cough or um, sniffle, I don't have coronavirus that I know of. just feel like we have to say that all the time. I have some allergies, so I apologize in advance. Paul says this, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment of silence as we do and kind of gotten into the habit of here and and, uh, just listen for the voice of God. What does God want to say to us this morning? Let's take a moment to pause. I want to encourage you to literally breathe in and breathe out. I want you to ask God, God, would you speak to me this morning? Would you show me what it is you want to teach me in these ancient words, which are so timely for our moment right now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. We want to believe that, that you have a word for us. We spend our weeks feeling divided, confused. The world is chaotic as it always has been. And God, we need to hear the voice of our good shepherd. And so God, would you clear away all other competing voices, whether those be outside of us or in many cases inside of us. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, with groans that only you can understand, would you speak, would you enter in with us, Spirit of God, and give us wisdom to see, wisdom to feel what it looks like to be a compelling countercultural community of maturity in a time that seems just fraught with immaturity. Enlighten our minds, inflame our hearts, embolden our hands, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, if you're new, um, spending the year as a community thinking about what it means to grow in wholeheartedness, our capacity to, to give and receive love with God and with other people and even with ourselves. 
So we're spending this entire year walking through that and teaching around that and and equipping us as a community uh, to do that better. We believe that we can grow up, as Paul says, into maturity. And and so um, we we left off last week this kind of a two-part sermon. So you jumped in the middle if you missed last week. But um, we we looked last week at the beginning of chapter 3. And uh, Paul here is sharing his journey of how he's come to know uh, Jesus. He's sharing this personal story, as we said last week, of shifting from a kind of a competency-based framework uh, of life where he has confidence in his own abilities to succeed apart from God. And he's shifting towards uh, a communion-based framework for life, which means just knowing Christ, being known by Christ, being conformed to his life pattern of death and resurrection. That's what it means to be a wholehearted. It's to know Jesus, to be known by Jesus, and help others do the same. And so Paul, in the latter half of this chapter... Uh, gives us a vision for something I think is so, so pertinent, so germane for the moment in which I know I say this like every week. This is the most important part of Philippians, and, and it really feels like it is. Uh, because I, as I was studying this week and praying over this, I just felt like God was just really stirring in me a desire to see uh, a fresh work of grace in us as a congregation, in this area specifically. And so I want to talk about what it means. I, I, I have like an hour and a half uh, worth of material, but just, I'm not going to do that. There's just so much that I want to say, so much that I have that I'm just feeling about this, but I'm going to try to narrow it down to about 30 minutes. So um, buckle your seatbelt. But I want to give us a vision for uh, progressive maturity. And I don't mean progressive in the political sense. as progressive, like this ongoing work of maturity that God wants to do in our lives. So starting in verse 12, I love this. So Paul comes off of the heels of this declaration in verse 10. This is perhaps one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture. Uh, Philippians is my favorite book of the Bible. I think this section right here is probably my favorite. He comes off of this declaration, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to be conformed to the, the pattern of his death, that by any means possible I maintain the resurrection from the dead. I mean, that's big truth. Paul's saying, I want to live that way so that I'm being conformed day in and day out, dying and being uh, raised from the dead, dying, being raised from the dead. And then one day, Paul says, my body is literally going to stop working. I'm going to be put in the ground. And I hope that on that day, God will continue that pattern of death and resurrection and bring me into his kingdom, or actually bring his kingdom to me. And then, lest you get discouraged and think, well, man, I, I can't live that way, Paul brings us into his own story, continues his story with a word of encouragement. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is maturity, right? Paul says, I'm not already perfect. I'm not, some of your translations might say mature. This is the word uh, teleos, from which we get our word telos, this word perfect. It doesn't mean like perfectionism. What he's talking about, the idea of telos is a goal. It's something that you're aiming at. So the idea of telos is uh, it's incomplete. I've, I've, I've not arrived yet, Paul says. It's the idea of fulfillment. I haven't fully experienced what it means to know Christ. And in this context, throughout the rest of this chapter, he's specifically talking about knowing Christ in terms of being resurrected in the flesh the fullness of the kingdom of God coming to earth. So there's this tension and maturity that Paul's walking us into. He goes on to say later here in this passage, let the mature think this way. 
that word mature is the same word from which we get teleos. So twice he says, it's not that I've become fully mature yet, and then he says, but let the mature think this way. What's Paul doing? Is he schizophrenic? In other words, I think what Paul is saying here is that the mature are those who realize, who acknowledge they're not fully mature. Did you catch that? Those who acknowledge they're not fully mature, but they are those who are also pressing hard after it. So it's an acknowledgement I've not arrived, and yet I'm pressing hard after it. A couple of times you're going to hear him use that word press on, press on, press on, pursue, reach, strain, try to obtain. What Paul is saying is, I am mature enough to know what I don't know. (laughs) I know that I haven't arrived. I know that I have so far to go when it comes to the Christian life. See, we often think that maturity is, I've arrived at a certain place. Paul would actually flip that and say, if you think you've arrived, you're immature. So here's my definition of maturity for us as we walk through this passage. Maturity, I believe, is knowing that you'll never arrive in the Christian life while always simultaneously pursuing wholeness in Jesus. It's never arriving, but always pursuing. This is maturity. Now, the great news is that um, people are discovering in psychology and the social sciences, this is actually what it means to have a healthy mind. To be a healthy person is to have this kind of approach to maturity. Carol Dweck uh, wrote a great book. She's a psychologist called Mindsight. And she talks about what it looks like to have a healthy mindset. And just kind of, uh, she's done a ton of research in this area. And she talks about two different kinds of mindset. A fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. Some people call it a beginner's mind or a beginner's heart, beginner's soul. You see, a fixed mindset believes that intelligence is static, which leads to a desire to constantly have to make ourselves look smart because we have to be the talented ones. And talent is something that's kind of intrinsic or inherited. It's something you either have or you don't. And it leads us to a tendency to do a couple of things. Avoid challenges in life. We don't like challenging things because we might be exposed to be incompetent. We give up easily. We see effort as fruitless or worse. We ignore useful negative feedback from other people. We feel threatened by the success of other people. And ultimately, we hold a deterministic view of the world, right? The world goes to the strong, it goes to the elite, it goes to those who've inherited through their DNA some kind of superiority intellectually or emotionally or spiritually. But she contrasts that with a growth mindset. She says this is actually what a healthy mind looks like. A growth mindset believes intelligence can be developed. And I don't mean just intelligence in terms of your IQ. I think she means holistically, emotionally, morally, uh, intellectually, all of those things. Intelligence can be developed which leads to a desire to learn and a tendency to do a couple of things. Embrace challenges rather than avoiding them. Persist in the face of setbacks. See effort as the path to mastery. Learn from criticism. Find lessons and inspiration in the success of others and experience a greater sense of agency in the world. In other words, you're not a victim, she says. Now, this is psychology. Thank you, Carol. This is also something that people have known throughout the history of the church. Great spiritual teachers have talked about the importance of having a beginner's mentality. One of my favorites is Thomas Merton. He says this, we do not want to be beginners. None of us like to say, I'm a beginner. 
business, family, relationships. But here's what he says. Let us be convinced of the fact that we will never be anything but beginners all our lives. Ouch. (laughs) You're always a beginner. And you know it. That's why we say fake it till you make it, because you know you're not there. So you can either pretend or you can be honest. That's why I believe one of the, the, meta, the meta skill of maturity, and I think Paul models this for us here, is self-awareness. Self-awareness is the meta skill for maturity. It's the key to wholeheartedness. By self-awareness, I just simply mean not a preoccupation with yourself that leads to navel-gazing in the way that it is you know, self-discovery for the sake of self-discovery. It's actually a kind of uh, self-awareness that leads to self-clarity that then I think ultimately here in Paul leads to self-giving. That's the difference between what we talk about here and narcissism. It's a self-awareness that leads to self-clarity that then leads to self-giving. Self-awareness is simply this. It's humility. That's what Paul's talking about in chapters 2 and 3. It's the humility to be clear about who we are and where we are and who we're not and where we're not. And to own that before God, before other people, And the hardest person to own it to is yourself. Just finished a book this summer by a great, uh, just a classic and kind of spiritual formation called The Interior Interior Castle by a lady named Teresa of Avila. And it's a book all about prayer and kind of the journey towards a life of love with God. The very first chapter, the, the thing she says, I want you to know before anything else, this is hundreds of years ago. Here's what she says. So this is not anything new. If you're like all about self-awareness and you think that's just like a business thing, this has been talked about for centuries. Here's what she says. Self-knowledge is so important that even if you were raised right up to the heavens, I should like you never to relax your cultivation of it. So long as we are on this earth, nothing matters more to us than humility. And by humility here, she's talking about self-awareness. Knowing who you are in light of who God is so that you can continue to grow, continue to cultivate a beginner's mindset. The more you know God, the more you know you're not there yet. The more you know yourself, the more you know you need God. John Calvin in his great tome uh, uh, on the church and on theology back in the 16th century in this very first page says you can't know God unless you know yourself. And you can't know yourself unless you know God. Self-awareness is critical if we're going to embrace a life of maturity. You know what you don't know. You know you're not arriving. You know you've not arrived. But you're pursuing it. So it's not like this kind of awareness that says, well, I'm just not there. So I'm just going to be passive. We're all human. We all make mistakes. No. Paul says, I'm not there yet, but, I love this but. Paul's the master of but, of contrast, conjunctions, if you're an English teacher. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So how do we do this? How do we pursue maturity? Second thing I want you to hear, the absolute necessity of deliberate effort. The necessity of deliberate effort You will never become mature unless you learn deliberate effort. Paul says, I make every effort to take hold of it. 
because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, do not misunderstand what Paul's saying here. There's two ditches. One is uh, obviously the ditch of passivity, which oftentimes I find in like churches that love the gospel and love grace, we don't understand effort. To be gospel-centered means I just kind of passively like sit by and let life happen. Like there's some pill like Neo takes in the matrix where I take the red pill and I become sanctified. It's not what Paul's saying. He's also not saying on the other side, just work hard, sweat, put effort into it, and, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So this is not like a middle ground of like moderation here. This is a whole different way of approaching spirituality. It's a different framework. It's a third way. Here's the third way I think Paul would say. I'll just call it grace-empowered effort. Grace-empowered effort. Paul says, because Jesus has taken hold of me. Some of your translations say apprehended me. He seized me. He's grasped me. Because Jesus came and found me when I was lost, he said earlier in the chapter. He turned my life upside and reoriented me. It's not that I've come to know him. He's come to know me. He came to find me. Because he's taken hold of me. Because he lived the life that I couldn't live. Because he died the death that I should have died. Because he rose from the dead so that I could attain to the resurrection from the dead. Because all of that prior work of grace, Christ did without any of my own effort. That is all passive in terms of grammar there. Because Christ did this for me. Now look at Paul says, now I grasp. It's the same word. I grasp. I apprehend. I seize. This is a combination. I love this. Some of you are into grit. There's a great book on that in business. What we see here is grace and grit work together. Grace empowers grit, and grit is a natural outflow of grace. Paul's growth and maturity is empowered by and in direct response to Christ's prior work of grace in his life. One that doesn't make him passive. One that makes him eager, excited to press in. Maturity never happens automatically. It never happens magically. It never happens passively And it doesn't happen on our own through our own self-discipline. That's what Paul just kind of said. I've written off that self-discipline approach to the Christian life earlier in the chapter. Get this. There's no pill that we can take, right? And, And hear this. It's not the inevitable result of getting older. You can be old and immature. Amen, people that are over 40 in the room? Thank you, all five of us. It's not the inevitable result of aging. If anything, what we know about human biology is we get older, things get harder. We get more fixed. We decline. And that's not just a condition of our bodies. It ends in rigor mortis, right? Like that's death. When we get so rigid, we stop growing and learning. That's actually the definition of death. But there's a kind of spiritual rigor mortis. There's kind of an emotional rigor mortis that can take place, mental rigor mortis that can take place the older that we get. So age and maturity are not the same thing. But it doesn't happen automatically. It takes effort. I love D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, says it like this. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. 
We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. That's not Paul's vision of maturity. Notice all the action verbs here, right? Paul says, I make every effort. I, I, I take hold of this idea, lambano, lambano is the Greek word, or kata lambano, the same kind of Greek word used over and over here. It's to take aggressively. It's to seize or grasp or apprehend. Paul says, I press on. That word is dioko in the Greek. It's, it's the word, the same you see word, the same word he used for persecuting the church. I persecute, I push, I drive towards maturity. It's hard work to grow into wholeheartedness. All these words Paul uses, by the way, are borrowed from kind of common parlance around athletics. These are all uh, words that would have been taken from racing, from foot racing, specifically related to the Olympic Games. Paul says, you must, if you want to become mature, have a beginner's mind and an athlete's grit. What is it that takes such effort? Why is it so hard, Paul? Paul says, I, he goes on to say here, I press on, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but, but one thing I do, forgetting, this is what takes effort, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what's so hard about maturity? Paul says there's at least two things that take a lot of effort. One is to forget our past super hard. <laughs> and then to strain forward towards our future. In other words, to remain hopeful for the future in the midst of so much cynicism. This idea of forgetting, let me just talk about this for a second, forgetting or letting go of the past. It's in the present tense. Paul's saying this is something we have to keep doing. It's not something you do one time. It's like, oh, I don't like to talk about my past. Okay, well, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying it's an ongoing forgetting of. So this idea is not that it's been wiped from my memory again. I don't know why I'm on the matrix today, but like the matrix, like somebody plugs something into your head and you kind of wipe the system out and you do like a complete system reboot if you're like an IT person. That's not what happens. You can't do that unless you have amnesia. That's the only way you can do that. What he's saying is that it's irrelevant in terms of uh, excuse me, he's not saying that it's white from our memory or that it's completely irrelevant in terms of its shaping influence on our life script and how we operate. The, the idea here is I'm letting go. That's active. I have to let it go. I, it's like the idea of I have a clenched fist around my past. I have to open up my hands and let it go. I have to release it. I'm no longer longing for it or depending on it or dwelling on it or being defined by it or building my sense of identity on the past. Your story is not your destiny, Paul would say. It's important, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks when we talk about understanding our families of origin and understanding our social context from our past and how they shape our present. We're going to do a whole sermon on that. But Paul says you've got to learn to forget your past. It takes a lot of effort to do that. You've got to forget both the good things and the bad things. We've got to forget the good things, and Paul talks about some of those good things earlier in the chapter. And here's the thing about forgetting the good things. I used to think nostalgia. Nostalgia is absolutely dangerous to your spiritual health. I used to think, I, the church I was at before this one was 110 years old. So it was the reverse of our demographics. It was mostly people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even into their 90s. I used to think old people were the ones that were nostalgic. Then I started pastoring a young church, and I realized young people are just as bad at this as older people. 
It's amazing how quickly when you get into your 20s and 30s, you get nostalgic for the good old days of five years ago. Isn't that funny? Like, I, I hear this, like, oh man, if I could just go back, you, ha- you have a really profound experience. Many of you were converted to Christ in a college ministry, crew or campus outreach or something like that. You have a powerful experience. You're being mentored. You're living a communal life with all these other believers. Then you get dropped into Indianapolis. You take your first job, and you're like, what just happened? Life is terrible. I want to go back to college. Like, who says that? No, you don't want to go back to college. You, you, yeah, some of us, but like, you forget how bad that really was. You have selective memory. Like, oh man, I'm going to go back to that time when I was involved with that social justice initiative and I was doing nothing but serving the poor all the time. I was living as a missionary. Some of you are married now and you have kids. And you're like, man, it was so awesome when I was single. If I could just go back to single Brandon. What? I was miserable. I was a terrible human being prior to meeting my wife and Jesus. But we can get nostalgic about the past. Nostalgia is the breeding ground. Here's why it's dangerous. It's the breeding ground for idealism about the future. Because the imprints that get made on you then become what you project out into the future. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor, theologian, activist, called the danger of the wish dream. You have a wish dream about your marriage. You have a wish dream about your kids. You have a wish dream about your job, your calling, about the city, about our country. And that eventually leads to what? When it doesn't come true, disillusionment, despair. When you actually live into the reality of it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, that's the kind of thing that destroys, he said, the number one thing that destroys community is idealism. Because you're always comparing the present and the future to the past. And it never measures up. Hear me say this, and we'll move on. For a Christian, there are no glory days in the past. You realize that? Our glory days, Paul says, are all in the future. They're all in the future. The best, Paul says, is always yet to come. And if we spend our time building monuments to the past and wishing we could get back to the past, even the good things that happen, I mean, don't take Paul's word for it. This is all over the Bible. Ecclesiastes 7, Kohelet, the pastor, says this, say not, why were the former days better than these? i.e. like sitting around dinner table with your family. You hear that all the time. Man, if we could just get back to, and people pick their reference point, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, the 20s. Those were not glory days in the ultimate sense. There were some things that were great, some things that were not so great, were actually terrible. For it's not wisdom, he says, that you say this. So we got to forget the good things and It takes energy to forget, of course, the bad things, the sins that have been done to you, the trauma you've experienced, the divorce you've walked through, the the time you lost that job and your identity crumbled. Like, I know we've all lived trauma. We all have hurts in the past. And Paul's not saying forget those in the sense of repress those or let's not pursue justice for those things or let's just gloss over that sin. That's not what he means. But he's saying you cannot allow yourself to be defined by your hurt more than you are by the future glory that God has revealed to you in Christ Jesus. And that's what happens. Some of us get stuck. We get paralyzed in our hurt. And that becomes the dominant preoccupation of our lives is making people pay for things they've done to us in the past. And Paul says there is no future in that. It is rage. It is resentment. It is bitterness. It is dark going down that hole. 
So we have to forget the sins that are done to us as well as the sins that we forget. We've, we've committed against others. We're not clean. We've committed things. And we, we live with guilt and shame and sadness and cynicism. And so the question is, how are we struggling against allowing those things to define us? How do we remember our past through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? How do I remember the past redemptively? That's the key. That calls me to forgiveness. As I've been forgiven, the Lord's Prayer says, I forgive others. That calls me to healing. That calls me to a hopefulness for reconciliation for the future until my last breath. So Paul would say, you are not your past. Forget your past. Don't be defined by your past. Release your past. And that may mean at times we go through therapy. That may mean counseling. That may mean drawing near with a community of people who help you work through your past. But you cannot cling to your past, Paul says. You are not your past. You are who you are becoming in Christ in the future. This is a call to liberation. That's maturity. My gosh, we have so much to to talk about. It's an act of discipline. Paul says we have to keep doing that. I love this definition by G. Walter Hansen of forgetting. Forgetting is not a passive loss of memory. No, it was an active, continuous discipline of the mind and the heart for Paul. Although he did not actually forget the past, he lays out his past in the first seven verses, so it's not like he's forgotten it. He emphatically chose to disregard it. He forcefully rejected it. He openly declared a non-observance of his past. If you're a person struggling with letting go of your past, may I just make two quick recommendations for books that would be great for you to process with other people. One is by uh, a psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson, who's a Christian, called The Anatomy of the Soul. I've been going through it in my own life. Extremely helpful in understanding and making sense of our story and our memories specifically, and how we are wired as human beings and as Christians to, to move through that. It's a very practical book. Another one, um, if, you're, if you struggle with um, trauma, is by a theologian named Miroslav Volv. It's called The End of Memory. He was a guy that lived through the traumas of genocide and has come out on the other side without being bitter. Great book. We, it takes effort to leave the past behind. It takes effort to strain forward, Paul says also, and run our own race. He says, the one thing I do, there's this sense of concentration, focus. I, I strain towards the goal. This word goal is the word skopos, skopos, which is just the finish line in a foot race, right? The runner would strain with all of his might. If you ever ran a marathon, you strain and you reach that point where you feel like your body's going to collapse under the weight of exhaustion, And he says it's at that moment that your mind must be strong enough to continue forward, to strain, to reach with every fiber of your being. And when you would cross the finish line, the runner would go up into the stands and would stand before the judgment seat, the bema, which Paul talks about a lot in the New Testament, to receive your prize. Paul said, I have to keep straining towards God's calling, the upward call. doesn't mean like going to heaven one day when you die. It means the source of your call comes from God. The fulfillment finds itself in God. He is the goal. That's the call on our lives. And we all have a unique calling in that sense, what that looks like in our lives, vocationally and otherwise. And so Paul's saying, keep your eyes focused on the future that God has for you. In other words, don't look around and worry about what's happening with other people around you. I think of the funny story of Jesus and Peter where Peter, like, he's getting restored, and Jesus says, basically, you're going to die. You're going to be led around and martyred for your faith. And Peter looks around, and he's like, well, what about him? 
What about John? And, Peter, and what does Jesus say? Don't worry about John. I'm telling you what you're going to do. Don't get distracted by other people's calling. Don't try to imitate or, or just parrot or, uh, you know, copy somebody else's calling. God's got one for you. You stay focused on your own. Grace-empowered effort. You see why it's so hard? It's hard. It's hard to be mature. It's hard to be pursuing maturity. It takes a lot of effort to let go of the past, to strain towards the future calling that God has for us. And I love this, how he ends. Paul says, let those who are mature, those of us who are mature, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to this example, this type, this archetype you have in us. Paul says, let those who are mature think like me, as I think like Christ, Paul says. You have this mindset, chapter 2, in you, which is also in Christ. Now, have this mindset that I have that's also in Christ in you. He's calling them to share his mindset, to think and behave like adults rather than children. He's always doing this in the New Testament, his epistles. Grow up into the fullness of Christ. Grow up, start thinking like adults. Let's start adulting people. He's not saying conform to my personality, do it the way I would do it, but have my mindset. Beginner's mind, athlete's grit. But I love Paul's flexibility as a mentor. Hey man, if you don't agree with me, that's fine, God will teach you. He's not trying to browbeat them and say, this is the way you have to do it, young people. This is the path to follow. My path has to be your path. Here's the 10 secrets to success. He says, no, man, I'm trusting God. Now, what he's not saying is, you do you when it comes to like, what is the gospel or like orthodox theology or the essentials. What he's saying is on non-essential things, how we get there, how we run our race. Hey, man, I don't know. God's gonna have to speak to you. I love, I mean, do you have that kind of confidence as a mentor if you're mentoring other people? I trust God's going to teach you in his time. I don't have to force it. I don't have to try to fix you, manipulate you into my image. I love that. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is a military word, this word, uh, hold true. Keep in step with, Paul says, what you've already attained. Don't regress. Don't stop. Don't fall back in the race. What I, I think Paul is telling us here is that maturity is developmental. It's developmental. It's not static. You have attained a certain maturity. Be the most mature version of yourself that you can be. Keep and stay in step with where you are, not wishing you were somewhere else, not trying to be something else. See, we often view maturity, particularly in the church, as a kind of linear certification process. You ever gone through a certification for something? Like I grew up in Louisville, uh, a lot of my neighborhood people uh, worked for Ford, uh, and they were union people. And then the, the idea of it in the union is you get all these certifications and you develop a sense of mastery, and then you get what's called seniority. And that brings all kinds of perks and, and, and things like that in the company. That's how we often think about maturity. Young people, this is what you're told if you're young. Work hard, acquire the right skills, competencies, experiences, go to the right Bible studies, and when you get to be like 40 or 50 or 60, then you'll be some kind of certified guru, and then you can be a mentor. Then you can be mature. Once you're certified, then you get released to train other people even. So maturity then becomes about how much Bible you know, 
how much theology you know. It's intellectual mostly. How, much, how old you are, how much seniority you have in the union, so to speak. How much certainty you have around your little algorithm for what it means to be mature, spiritual. You ever heard people talk like that? Oh, if these young people would just do X, Y, and Z. If they pray this way, vote this way, read these books, then they'd be mature like me. That is not maturity, friends. It's not. It has an air of certainty around it. It feels mature. But it's actually a misplaced confidence. And we can do that at any age, right? There's no curiosity. There's, there's no openness. There's never an asking of questions, a desire to learn. People like that generally are poor listeners. They lack self-awareness. They shame other people. How many of you have been shamed over your politics the last 60 days by people who should know better? See, the problem with that view of maturity is it's just not biblical. It's not biblical. Maturity is developmental. It's seasonal. It's cyclical. It's dynamic. It's not static or linear. It's not a ladder that you climb to maturity. It's a cycle of renewal, right? Like you go through these seasons of decline. Ecclesiastes, there's a season for everything. There's a season to be young and embrace being young. It has opportunities and there are limitations, but that's okay. Live into that. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Be the best version of your developmental stage that you can be. And I just want to close with just a word to us, a pastoral word to us as a congregation. In a moment where there is so much, in my opinion, and in myself, (laughs) I know in me first, so much immaturity. So much immaturity, and it's so disappointing to see it in the church. It's It's a crisis of maturity in the church. And this is not anything new. Edwin Friedman, who was a Jewish rabbi, family therapist, organizational consultant, he wrote about this like, you know, decades ago in The Failure of Nerve, one of my favorite leadership books. This kind of cycle of anxiety that leads to emotional regression. Not just moral regression. We talk a lot about moral regression in our society. How about emotional regression? How about our inability to live as wholehearted people? He he says it's characterized by reactivity. We see that everywhere. Hurting, blame displacement, quick fix mentalities, and a lack of what he calls well-differentiated leaders, people who, who in the midst of anxiety can be a non-anxious presence and remain connected without, being, without allowing themselves to be disrupted to the point of becoming immature. I believe we're living in a pandemic, of course, not only though of COVID-19, this might sound cheesy, but of spiritual immaturity. It is pandemic, it is endemic. It's not just moral and spiritual, it's emotional. It's, it's spiritual for sure. I see all around me, so many of us have so little resilience, so little patience, so little curiosity, curiosity to learn, curiosity to grow, to be challenged about our assumptions about how we approach life. So many people think they've arrived politically, arrived spiritually, arrived theologically, arrived emotionally. And yet, we see an exodus in the church. Literally, people leaving church at an unprecedented rate in the last six months. Doesn't matter what your context, doesn't matter your denomination, it is happening across the country. And and the sad thing is, and and I'll, I'll say something to both groups, but I see this in more seasoned people who should know better. People who reach a certain age and they stop listening, they stop learning. They stop challenging their own assumptions about life or allowing themselves to be challenged about what they know. 
This happens whether it's a cultural issue like race or politics, or a personal development issue like self-awareness, emotional maturity, or theological blind spots. I see parents shaming their adult children. Like every week I talk to you, and literally your parents are on the verge of disowning you because of who you're voting for in this election. Christians! And we call it life experience. I'm more experienced than you. But it's really, and oftentimes, a fixed mindset of rigidity, insecurity, and maturity. Right? Like, there's a difference between having 20 years experience in something and having, having a one-year experience lived 20 times. Just because you've been around longer doesn't mean you're more mature. It just doesn't. You could have the same small, narrow set of experiences or assumptions extrapolated out 25 or 30 or 40 years and still be trapped in immaturity. Does not equal, experience does not equal humility, and it does not equal wisdom. And for those of you who are here, thank you. Like for those more seasoned people, the few that are around here that are staying with us, like I'm not talking about you. You're here. Thank you for staying. I want to acknowledge your maturity. I want to acknowledge your willingness to stay and to hang with a very young church in the midst of all kinds of polarization. Thank you. Thank God for you. Please hear me say that. Keep up the good work. And so to our younger people, which is most of this room, I want to say to you, like, I know that many of you are growing discouraged. I know that many of you are disappointed. I know you're feeling resentful towards an older generation in many ways. I want to encourage you, please be patient. We are on this journey together towards maturity. Do not sideline yourself by forcing or buying into faulty cultural narratives about what it means to progress in life. Progress. You see, what I often hear from you is that progress is all about empowerment. And again, I'm for empowerment. I'm for voices being heard. I'm for acknowledging all the ways historically that's not happened and different groups of people have been excluded from that privilege. I hear you. But here's the thing. Paul says the goal of the Christian life is not empowerment. The goal of the Christian life is what? Maturity. Because what happens when you empower immaturity? Bad things happen. So yes, we should empower women. But ladies, let's pursue maturity in our femininity. We should empower minority voices. But yes, brothers and sisters, brown and black, all colors, all races, let's pursue maturity within our cultural identities. Don't waste all of your time complaining about how you're not being empowered, how you don't have a seat at the table, how your voice is not being heard. Focus on becoming the kind of person who carries a spiritual authority that cannot be ignored in this cultural moment. You will have all the opportunities you want in the future to lead. I love 1 Timothy 4. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set the believers an example. Be a type. Be an archetype. Be a blueprint in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in maturity. Can you say that you're doing that at the dinner table with your family? Are you doing that in your business with coworkers who disagree? Are we living this out or are we just giving them reasons to dismiss us as narcissistic and deconstructionists? I am so inspired by those of you who are young in this room. Many of you inspire me with your maturity, with your wisdom, 
with your faith, with your passion. You inspire me. You inspire your pastors. Keep growing. Keep pushing. Keep challenging. Keep learning. Keep leading as you are. Be the best 22-year-old you can be. Be the best 30-year-old you can be. Be the best 40-year-old you can be. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Now, I'm way over my time, but we're going to be done. But I just want us to consider what it might look like for us to be this kind of a church. Regardless, I don't care how many people come to this church. When the pandemic's over, I, I don't care. I mean, we have to have a few to have a church. That'd be nice. But I'm more concerned about who are we becoming as a church? Who's hungry? Who wants to grow? Who wants to press into this? I've not arrived, but I'm always pressing forward to the goal that Christ has for me. That's the kind of church I want us to be. That journey of maturity is what we are about. I'm just going to call this, and I'm borrowing this from a business book, but it's one of my favorites out there called An Everyone Culture. Um, It's a vision for becoming a deliberately developmental church. By that we mean we don't just focus on the work we're doing, but the people doing the work, becoming mature. And we make that our aim, to deliberately develop mature people who are a gift to the world as we move out of this church. An incubator for development. Yes, we're a young church, and we are getting younger during this global crisis. (laughs) We cannot do anything about that, guys, except get older. Keep having birthdays. But we can strive to be the most mature young church that we can be. We can be an incubator of development, incubator of learning, being challenged, growing into the fullness of this vision. So where do you need to mature? Where do we need to mature? That's the question I close with. Where do we need to mature? Where do we need to grow up? As Paul says, like, a, like an athlete, we wake up tomorrow, we put our running gear on, we get our shoes on, we get ready to go, we get out there, and we run. We haven't arrived. We have a lot of growing up to do as a church, no doubt. Let me suggest three areas where we need to grow. One, some of us need to mature in our awareness of our immaturity. You know what it's like to be around a person who lacks self-awareness? And we can all laugh. Think, I want you to think about that person in your mind. Laugh right, real quick. Now, just remember somebody's thinking that way about you. Might be sitting next to you. What's not going well in my life right now that's revealing immaturity in my relationships, in my leadership, in my ministry, my business? Is that an invitation for me to maybe grow? Maybe it's not everybody else's fault. Maybe it's me that needs to grow. Even if it's 95%, I still have my five where I can grow. Do you know what you don't know? Do you know where you've not yet arrived? Are you honest? Who are you telling that? Who's holding you accountable for that? Are you even talking about that? What about instead of ghosting or canceling or erasing each other in this moment when we get mad, how about we lean in and we try to grow through it? Second, Some of us need to mature in our grace-empowered effort toward maturity. We need the energy of the Spirit, as Paul says, to grow and to run our race. What is it that needs to be left behind in the past? What what goal or calling needs to be released and embraced and strained towards in the future? And finally, some of us need to mature in owning and leveraging our maturity for the good of others. Some of you God has placed and deposited some amazing maturity in, and like the parable of the talents, you're sitting on it because you're scared. You're afraid to be vulnerable. You're afraid to let people in. You're afraid to be found out to be a fraud. Oh man, don't waste this opportunity. Our country 
Our church, our community needs you to leverage your maturity for the good of others. That's what Paul says. Join in imitating me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what we need here at this church. A bunch of people looking at each other and saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word for us. We desperately need your power, your presence, your help. So God, give us what we need. Give us your grace. Give us your help. Help us to become a community pursuing maturity, regardless of age, size, background. God, we want to grow. We want to change. We want to become more like Jesus. So conform us to the pattern of your life and your death and your resurrection. Give us a view and a vision of maturity that never stops until the day we see you face to face. We pray this in your name. Amen.